here's the thing is that it is incredibly profitable for us to be confused about what's good for us. It's incredibly mm. profitable for us to be, to think wine is good. And then wine is bad. Bread is good. Bread is bad. Meat is good. Meat is bad. It's very profitable because the more confused you are, the more they can simply dictate to you. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to The Pursuit. I'm your host, Ben Spangle. I've got a very special guest today, Eric Edmeads. I first got to know Eric. We were actually at a Dr. Joe Dispenza retreat together and got to spend a little bit of time together. And what I didn't know at the time was who I was sitting by and who I was talking to. And as I've got to look into more and more, uh, man, I'm so excited for him to be sharing some time with all of us today. L- let me give you a little bit of background about Eric. I mean, we're talking about big time serial entrepreneur with, I think it's pretty neat to see just all the diversity of different businesses that you've been involved in, Eric, and, and so many different things. But also too is, uh, and this is what I didn't know at the time as well, but I mean, Eric is one of one of the leading experts when it comes to I, what I would consider nutrition, health, and fitness, which I'm excited to talk about today behavioral change dynamics. I mean, he's created some of the most transformative training programs and seminars on the planet. I mean, he's spoken on some incredible stages. I know he's done lots of work with, uh, I think you, you had spoken as uh, part of the, the um, business mastery group with Tony Robbins for quite some time, shared the stage with Richard Branson, Jack Canfield, John Gray, Robin Sharma, and so many more. It's exciting. So Eric, hey, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. I'm glad to be here, Ben. Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. Um, I want to jump right into stuff. I know I want to talk about WildFit and I want to I want to know more about it. I want to share it with our audience. So first things first, do you mind sharing a little bit about your story? How, how did it come about that you started WildFit? I guess it, in a real sense, it kind of starts when I was about 12. My great grandfather was a famous archaeologist and zoologist, and we went to go visit the National Museum in, in Bloemfontein, South Africa. And I held a cast of this skull that he found. He found at the time the oldest Homo sapiens skull that had ever been found, 259,000 years old. Wow. And as I held this skull in my hand, I started drifting off in my mind to what life must have been like back then. You, if you consider time frames, you're talking about something that is like, you know, it makes the pyramids last week. You know, that it, it's, it's, it's a very long time frame. Years later, um, I, I was uh, unwell. I, I was sick. And I don't mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like dying or anything, but I, I definitely was suffering. And I, I had horrible allergies and digestive problems and headaches and cystic acne and, and sinus infections that meant that I didn't even breathe from my own sinuses in the, for years. And, uh, and then a bunch of my friends sat me down one day and we just had this conversation about food. And I was like, whatever, you know, I, I eat pretty normally. I eat normally. I'm a pretty healthy person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I decided to take them at their were, you know, kind of decided to do a bit of a dare, if you will. And 30 days later, I had, you know, avoided some things and added some things in. And 30 days later, I'd lost 35 pounds. And wow. you wouldn't have looked at me and said that I was like, say, particularly overweight, but it turns out I really was. And and, um, and all my symptoms went away and I got off all the medications I was on and I ended up turning down a surgery that I'd been prescribed and then my entire life changed. And that stimulated some curiosity in me and, and it stimulated a conversation with one of my doctors, which I've now had with several doctors. And it goes like this, how long did you go to medical school for six years to become a general practitioner? And of those six years, how much of that time did you spend studying food? None. And, and honestly, that blew me away. I, I, when the first time I had that conversation with, with the doctor, I really, truly thought that it was a, 
a mistake of memory or something. They just, oh, it was a lot of stuff to learn and just didn't remember. But consistently, year after year, I've asked this question of, of, of uh, doctors and specialists, and the answer is absolutely the same all the time, except for two exceptions. Occasionally, a doctor will take an elective nutrition course. They don't have to take it to get their, their degree. Or doctors in Albania do have to do six months of nutrition training to become an MD. Hmm. Now, when I realized that, I frankly, I felt like I was in a plane and just found out the pilot never studied flying. Like, I, I, I was like, I, what do you mean you didn't study food? Isn't that like the single biggest influence on health? And you didn't study that? And so I then started studying and heavily. I mean, I, I really, I dove deep into it and, and, uh, but, and I discovered some things about it that, that I found disquieting and some encouraging and what have you. But what I mostly found shocking, Ben, was that friends would take a look at how I changed and they would say, how did you do that? And I would give them the instructions and they'd be all excited about it. And then they wouldn't change, Mm. you know? And I I was like, why aren't you changing? And, and, And what I was, tapping into was something that I didn't realize. And that was that um, there's a reason that the diet industry doesn't work. And, and, and the reason is because it's most profitable when it doesn't work. And, and it's also because it's reliant on people's use of willpower and willpower is not uh, effective long-term. It's a, it's a short-term muscle. It's not something meant for long-term adjustment. And, and so I kind of gave up telling my friends what to do because it just was pointless. They weren't doing it. Mm-hmm. But many years later, I got heavily involved in coaching. As you mentioned, I was uh, traveling around the world teaching uh, business with Tony Robbins. And at that point, I'd done a lot of study into, you know, behavioral change and, 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 and so on. And I developed a, a methodology called behavioral change dynamics, which is a construct that I use for designing experiences and designing education and transformation programs. And so I decided to run WildFit through this formula. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I, and, and basically, the difference was is that Yes, we were going to talk about rules. Yes, we were going to talk about food and nutrition, but we're also going to talk about psychology. We're going to talk about how your parents um, accidentally, unintentionally got you to think that cookies equaled love or that ice cream equaled freedom or that chocolate equaled, you know, compassion or whatever the case might be. We're going to help people deframe those things. We're going to help people to um, undo the manipulative marketing practices and break the food addictions that have been given to them in order to take the freedom away. And I ran my first eight clients through this and all eight of them had dramatic improvement, which is statistically unlikely. I mean, the the statistics in the diet industry are that roughly 1% of people that undertake a diet actually get somewhere. And most of them have lost their path a year later. All of a sudden I had eight people out of eight. So I did another eight and I did another eight. And then all of a sudden, one of my friends who had done the program in one of my classes of eight said, well, look, can I tell my network about this? And I'm like, okay. And he goes, what's the website? And I don't have a website. You know, you only can buy the program. If you come to my business programs, it's not something I sell. You know, mm-hmm. and he goes, you better put up a website. So I put up a website. He told his network about it and a year's worth of clients signed up in a day. Wow. It was, it, it, like, and then all of a sudden another guy did that and another year's worth of clients signed up in about a week. And then Vishen Lakiani from Mind Valley came along yeah. and he did the program and it, and he published pictures of his body online and told people they should come do WildFit. And then like five years of clients signed up in two weeks. Wow. And all of a sudden we were on the map doing some big things. And uh, I, it, it's just been a phenomenal success story. And it's the greatest honor of my, of my professional life to have developed it. That's so cool. That's such a great story. I've seen those pictures of Vishen too. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, amazing. Um, if if we go back for a sec, I want to talk a little bit about here. You talk about so I mean, there's so much information in this space, 
right? So much information. And, you know, I think the, the basic premise is, well, you just need to exercise more and eat a little bit better. Can you talk about why that traditional advice isn't working for people? There's a lot of reasons. First of all, the move a little more, um, you know, if you moved a little more, that that whole idea was actually created by the soft drink industry in order to help people justify consuming colossal numbers of calories. It was basically like they saw people wanting to reduce their calorie intake and they said, shoot, here's how we could get them to not reduce their calorie intake. We get them to increase their calorie burn. Mm. And so the whole idea of calorie restriction diets and then using exercise to come along to, 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 to obliterate your calorie intake are based on incredibly bad science and really have no place in any diet conversation ever. But they suit the food industry because first of all, if you're supposed to be on a calorie restriction diet and then you don't stick with it, well, it was your fault, not the food industries. And then on top of that, if you just didn't move enough, it's still your fault, not the food industries. I would put to you that the term lifestyle disease is a disgusting reframe by the food industry and the and, and the government, frankly, to blame us for the diseases that their food regulation and food production and food manufacturing policies have created for us. If you call it a lifestyle disease, it's your fault. The truth is, is I think that we as individual people do have to take responsibility for our health, but we also have to recognize that when somebody manipulates the legislation, when they manipulate the regulation, when they manipulate the education, they put us in a position where we aren't actually empowered to make a good decision. And so now it becomes their fault. And so we have to take responsibility in our own lives. But part of that is, is that we got to bring to task the manufacturers who've done this stuff to us. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. And part of your story is unique. I know as I was watching more about this is that you, you had a season at a time where you were literally living in the bush in Africa with, with a tribe, I believe, right? And, and I think that that's where a lot of the foundation of, of maybe not a lot of it, but part of it came from Wildfit. Is that correct? You know, um, Wildfit was already fairly well. Well, no, actually, actually, that's not even true. I think that my, my first visit with the Hadza people was about 10 years ago, which pretty much coincides with the start of Wildfit. But, okay. you know, yeah, there's no question that my visits with the Hadza over the last 10 years have influenced my thinking about a great many things. And in fact, uh, I'm working on a book currently uh, about a concept called the, the evolution gap. And the theory of the evolution gap is that you, um, you know, normally a species evolves in a pretty tight step-by-step -step relationship with its environmental conditions. You know, humans is a good example. We evolved different skin color because we moved away from the equator. When you live equatorially, you have incredibly dark skin to protect you from the rays of the sun. And then as you start moving north and north and north or south, or south and south and south, your skin gets lighter to allow more of the sun's rays to get in. Hmm. Now that is not the evolution gap, that's evolution. And that takes like, that takes tens and tens of thousands of years to happen. But then you come to the modern age and you can take somebody like you who clearly has Northern European DNA and we can fly you to Africa and you are going to burn under that sun. Mm -hmm. That's the evolution gap. And, and, and spending time with the Hadza has enabled me to really get clear about what that means to notice the evolution gap as it applies to food, exercise, parenting, relationships, leadership, communication, and so on. Hmm. That's awesome. And, and what would you say if, if you were to share a couple of the lessons that you, you learned from them, share some of those with us? Well, here's maybe the biggest one. And, uh, um, and, and it actually only happened in February. Like I, I went to go visit them recently in February this year, and um, I, I, which was kind of wrapped up 10 years of visiting them so far. Hmm. And something different happened this time. You see, normally 
uh, I've done visits with them where I see them for a day or two. And then I've done embedded visits where I stay for a longer period of time. And so I've done a variety of different types of hunting trips with them. And generally speaking, when you go hunting, well, always when you go hunting with them, you will have a guide who is not Hadza, who's, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, somebody from Tanzania who is in the travel industry that's kind of acting as a guide to take you. And so I have two very good friends that are guides there and they, they come with us all the time. And here's what happens if you get separated during the hunt. Well, you're still with the guide. So you're OK. Well, in any event, this time I went and I decided to take some people with me. So I took Jeffrey Perlman, one of the uh, co-founders of Zumba and the ex-chief uh, marketing officer of Zumba, because he's a good friend and on our advisory board and been helping move with And then I also took Paul Saladino, who's the author of The, uh, the Carnivore Code. And I took um, Anthony, and I can't think of his last name right now. Damn it, live. I hate when that happens. But yeah. the, uh, uh, the founder of Perfect Keto. Okay. And so off we went and, and I took my girlfriend, Percy, who's also our staff photographer for trips like that. So off we went to do this, uh, this trip and we went hunting and this day, this particular day, we were hunting baboons. They, they, they go on particular trips to hunt certain things and baboons are one of their favorite things to hunt. So they're hunting baboons, which frankly is a lot more like warfare than hunting. It's actually hmm. quite disturbing to see. Hmm. And so off we go and they managed to kill a baboon and, and, Again, very disturbing to watch that happen. And uh, and then they did as they've done with me many times before. Stay here with the body, protect it from the hyenas and shit, and we're going to go get more. And they've done this with me a number of times where they've like had me stay behind with, you know, a couple of the hunter kids and and then they go off and do more hunting. So there we all are, me and and Paul and Jeffrey and Anthony and, and Kirsty are all sitting there. Now I need to pee. So I get up and I walk down to the riverbed. There's a driver riverbed and I'm going to go have a little privacy and have a little pee in the bush. And as I'm standing there, the chief, who I've really come to know and has become a good friend, runs by and he goes, Mzungu, Mzungu, Mzungu. And I'm like, okay, I don't like speak a whole lot of Swahili, but I know Mzungu means tourist. It's kind of like the Thai word for, you know, they, they say, uh, what are they, Farang or Guaylo. It's every country seems to have this word for the Europe, you know, for the tourist who comes, right? So, so he's going, tourist, tourist, tourist. And I think he wants me to run with him. So we start running and we're running like at a pace. And we've already done probably 12 to 15 miles that day already. And now we're running full speed through the bush and we're running and I go, where does he want to take me? After about half an hour, I realized I am so far away from where we left the baboon that I would not be able to find my way back. And guess what? All the guides are there with Paul and Anthony and Kirsty and, and, and best guess what? I said to Kirsty, I'll be right back. And by the way, Ben, when you're watching a movie, and somebody is in the wilderness somewhere and says, I'll be right back. They never come back. It's, <laughs> they don't come back. Guess what? I said, I'll be right back. Went to go off for a pee. And then I ran off and everybody at back at camp is like, what the hell happened to Eric? And we're running along. And after about an hour, we stop. And we stop in this little kind of gully where the baboons are up on this one hill and they're trying to strategize how to get to them and all this kind of stuff. And then the chief looks at me and I'm not, it's crazy. He looks at me and he goes, and he points at one of the dogs. And I think that the phrase he said, Umkono, I think that means his name is. And he says, Umkono, Muzungu. The dog's name is Muzungu. He wasn't talking to me at all. He was yelling at the dog, Muzungu, Muzungu, Muzungu. But I, so I wasn't supposed to run with him at all. Wow. Here I am in the middle of nowhere with the Bushmen, with no guides. And, 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 and I, like, this is scary. And then the hunt resumes. And I am at my limit. I'm at 20 some odd miles. I did not train for this particular marathon. I'm running through the bush. It's Africa hot. There's storm trees trying to kill me. And I slip into a zone. I don't know how to describe it, but 
I slip into this place where I'm kind of having an out-of-body experience. I, I'm no longer feeling the pain in my body from the thorns scratching me and the running for so long and the muscle pain. I just slip out of that. And I'm able to see almost from the outside what I'm going through. And I, I see a number of things. I see incredible leadership. I see that I and his followers believe him that we're going to be successful. And we are, we are following him through pain, through danger. We're following him. He's showing like unbelievable leadership. And then I see something else that every single thing that he does and that all of the people in his tribe do to pursue pleasure, move them toward greater success and, and greater, a greater survival. Everything that they do for pleasure is for them. Hedonism is a survival strategy. And that's because they're neurotransmitters. That's because the biochemical systems that we have to generate our emotions evolved in that environment. And so they are rewarded for doing things that make them succeed. They are rewarded for doing things that improve their odds of survival and procreation. And that means that for them, every single day when they are pursuing pleasure, they are improving their odds of success. And we have those same pleasure systems, but we live on the other side of the evolution gap where those pleasure systems are lethal to us. They drive us to eat copious amounts of food that are not good for us. They drive us to spend hours upon hours of consuming social media that, that consume the wrong way is detrimental to our health. We are, we are living in the safest times in the history of humanity. We are living in absolutely with the lowest levels of poverty ever seen before, the lowest levels of suffering. Think about this, 200 years ago, if you had a serious injury on your hand or foot, they were so afraid of gangrene that they would just cut your hand or foot off. And by the way, they hadn't invented anesthesia yet. That's what life was like 200 years ago. And we live in the safest, most pain-free, most amazing times ever. And yet antidepressant prescriptions are going through the roof and suicide rates are higher than they've ever been before. Mm -hmm. And that's because our pleasure systems are not aligned with our environment. And, mm -hmm. and, and that is maybe one of the biggest things that I have seen spending time with them. And it has affected my entire being. It's affected the development of WildFit. It's affected everything about the way I think and, uh, and operate as a person. That's amazing. What a story. <laughs> I can only imagine your heart's just racing through that too. <laughs> um, so a follow-up question on that then. So it, saying what you just said there, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So then what's some tactical stuff? How do we start to shift the pleasure system with our body? So if we're not aligned, how do we start to come into alignment? Um, there's a number of different ways to do that. In, 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 the, in the book I'm working on now, we talk about a concept called uh, conscious hedonism. And, you know, hedonism is a word that is often tainted in the English language. Like, you know, a hedonist is a is a bad person who only pursues pleasure at the cost of all else. But I'm going to put to you that the only reason we see hedonism that way is because our pleasure systems are off. Where a Hadza person who's a hedonist is simply following, I mean, think about it, our pleasure systems evolved to ensure our survival and procreation. <laughs> they, they evolved for that. So mm -hmm. the fact that they're now messed up is that we have a bad compass. So being a hedonist now can be bad. And so what we want to do is become a conscious hedonist. And that means, well, I'll give you two really powerful strategies. One is that we have to look at our hedonism timeline. And the hedonism timeline works like this. I have a donut in front of me. And I recognize that eating that donut is going to give me pleasure in this moment. Mm -hmm. Right? It's going to give me pleasure in this moment. But how is it going to make me feel in an hour or the next day? And, and so understanding the hedonistic timeline allows us to bring a certain degree of consciousness to our decisions. We, we take a look and say, wow, I really want to buy that Xbox 
And I could use my credit card to do it as so many kids do when they first get their credit card. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, they're allowing their hedon their desire for immediate hedonism, their immediate pleasure to delay the purchase or not delay the purchase, I'm sorry, to, to have the purchase now and delay the payment by putting on a credit card. But what they're not knowing and what they've not been taught in school is that they're gonna literally pay three times as much for that Xbox as they were by buying on credit. Plus on top of that, they're gonna go play Xbox and they're gonna fire off all their pleasure systems, numbing them. They're gonna fire off all their adrenal systems and not burn the adrenaline. They're gonna flood their system with cortisol and not burn out the cortisol and they're gonna damage their health. And they don't understand any of this. Hmm. And so understanding the hedonistic timeline, understanding how your pleasure centers works is really important. Another strategy that, um, that we talk about in the book is called uh, pleasure fasting. And the concept of pleasure fasting kind of works like this. Um, if you are eating sugar, say on a regular basis, then sugar starts getting less and less and less sweet, which means you need more and more and more sugar to stimulate your, mm. your senses. Um, the same thing with alcohol. You've probably noticed that there are some of your friends cannot handle their alcohol very well and some can. Well, the difference generally is influenced by how much they drink. So mm. people who drink quite a lot need more alcohol to feel drunk. People who don't, I haven't had alcohol in 30 years. I guarantee you, I could drink one vodka, one, one like vodka mix, and I'd be out, man. I'd be drunk. And mm. matter of fact, I happen to know that that's true because a couple of weeks ago, I was in a resort in Punta Cana, the Dominican Republic, and I ordered, they brought me this like fruit drink. And I said, it's just fresh fruit, right? It was just fresh fruit. And he goes, yeah. And I go, no alcohol, right? And he goes, yeah, no, no. So thirsty from the heat. It was like super hot up. I drank the whole thing down. It was so delicious. And then my chest caught on fire. And I was like, wow. What the hell's going on inside me? Waiter, is there alcohol? He goes, no, no, no. Just some champagne and rum. <laughs> oh, holy shit. And by the way, 15 minutes later, I started feeling the lightheaded feelings of in inebriation that I had not felt in 30 years. Wow. You might, you know, the average person might not feel that if they yeah. if they drink regularly, but I am. And, and so what can we learn from that? Well, one of the things we can learn from that is that if we overstimulate our pleasure centers, then we need more stimulant to feel pleasure. And so we're going to become better consumers that way. We're going to eat more junk food that way. We're going to drink more alcohol that way. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to seek out empty pleasure that way more regularly. What any of us knows is that when we delay something for a longer period of time, it's going to taste even better. If you wait until you're really, really hungry, food tastes better. Mm -hmm. If you don't have an orgasm for a week, the next one's even better. Mm -hmm. If you haven't had it for a month, it's even better. And mm -hmm. so what we talk about is a concept of pleasure fasting where you actually make the decision to not stimulate your pleasure centers for a period of time in order to maximize your feeling of pleasure and to recalibrate the compass. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, in, in timeline on that, I mean, I guess people get the book once it's out here and be able to learn more a little bit about it. Is there a kind of a window that this seems to be an ideal spot for pleasure fasting? Is it a week, two weeks, a month? I think it depends a great deal on the, on the stimulant. It, it, okay. it depends a great deal on what it is that's giving you the pleasure. Um, I, I would say that like with food, for example, if somebody fasts for a single day, um, yeah. which is a great thing to do from time to time, they're going to notice immediate repercussion. They're going to notice how much yummier food can be the very next day. They're going to notice that yeah. the trouble for most people is that they eat all through the day. They eat their meals and then they snack through the day and they snack through the day. And what they don't realize is that they're blunting their own pleasure systems, which is causing them to need to eat more. Hmm. And so the, the truth is if they gave themselves a bit of a break, if they use something like intermittent fasting or full on fasting, mm -hmm. they're going to get an effect of that within hours. 
Now, sugar, on the other hand, we've noticed that sugar takes something between three to seven days for people to really get to the place where their sugar taste buds recalibrate. And this is, this is an important thing to do. It's really important to have a healthy relationship with sugar because sugar eaten badly and eaten in the wrong kinds and corn syrup and all this shit is devastating to our bodies. And mm. so we want to have a healthy relationship with sugar. The challenge is, is that sugar, like, look, if you're outside in the bright, hot sun, and then you walk inside and you don't turn on the lights, it's awful dark inside. And then it takes a little while for your eyes to recalibrate, but five minutes. And then all of a sudden inside isn't so dark at all. Mm-hmm. Well, your taste buds in the glaring, hot, bright sugar world of corn syrup and refined sugar and all this kind of stuff is being bombarded by a level of sweet that our ancestors never had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so you, and then the more you do that, the more sugar you need to experience the feeling of sweet, which is one of our great pleasures. And the more you, the more you have, the more you need, the more you have, the more you need. Mm-hmm. If you take a break from between three to seven days from those things, all of a sudden you'll pick, you'll, you'll pick up a piece of broccoli and go, broccoli is sweet. Hmm. Yeah, it is. It is. But most people taste it as bitter because their, their pleasure centers have been miscalibrated. Wow. Can you talk about, I want to hear you talk about this because we say sugar is devastating to the body. Can you tell us more <laughs> about that? What, when, when it's devastating, what, what is devastating about it? Well, I think first of all, we have to understand that, in English, we, we often use a single word to describe an entire family of things, right? right? So is meat good or bad? Yes, meat can be good or bad. You know, is, right. is, is, is sugar good or bad? Is fat good or bad? Is fat good or bad? Yes, there's good fat and there's bad fat. Mm-hmm. And so same thing with sugar. And so I would put that when we talk about the natural fructose that exists in, say, wild honey or, you know, or, or as natural fruit as you can get, mm-hmm. that's a fairly reasonable sugar to have. But even that sugar, you wouldn't want to eat on a day-by-day basis. And, mm. uh, and the reason you wouldn't want to eat it on a day-by-day basis is, well, the body evolved, our bodies evolved, not simply to survive seasonal fluctuation, but to utilize seasonal fluctuation. So every season that the body goes through has a purpose. Hmm. So, and the pancreas is a huge, um, you know, has a huge responsibility in guiding that purpose. So when you're eating sugar, your pancreas is producing insulin and it's meant to do that. You, you eat the sugar and your, your body starts metabolizing that sugar. It burns some of it. It, 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 it'll take some of it and store it as glycogen in your muscles and in your liver. And once your, your glycogen is topped up, then it'll go, well, we may as well store this for long-term use and we'll store it as fat. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely a wonderful feature of the human body. It's the only reason we're still here because frankly, we would never have made it through most of the winters that our ancestors had to survive if we weren't good at storing fat. Right. And so you, you eat sugar and you, you, and, and, and I kind of sometimes think of it like cash, like you, you get money in your wallet, which is your blood sugar. And then once your wallet is full, you put some in your bank account and that's your glycogen. And then once your bank account is up to the limit, you want to start putting investments away in term deposits and that's your fat. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's an important cycle for humans to go through. And the fall season is what drove that because the fall season is the season of reaping and the season of root vegetables and fruit ripening and all that kind of stuff. So you're eating these heavy carbohydrates and you're fattening up because the winter's coming. Well, guess what's going to happen in winter? Drought. We're not talking about Minnetonka, Minnesota here. We're talking about sub-Saharan Africa winter where our ancestors evolved. And so drought's going to happen. And what do we need when there's not a lot of food? We need stored water and energy. What is Mm -hmm. that? stored water and energy. Mm-hmm. And, and so now we go into winter and now we start to metabolize and use that fat. And we also trigger something called autophagy, which is the burning of protein when necessary. And burning of protein has been lambasted by all the fitness experts saying, you don't want to do too much cardio exercise because you'll start to burn your protein. No, no, no. The body is in 
is unbelievably smart about this. The way your body burns protein is a bit the way you and I would burn furniture in an old manner if the furnace stopped working in the midwinter. You burn the old shitty furniture first. Hmm, Why really? does the same thing with proteins? Yeah. It takes the old sick and diseased proteins, burns them first. Wow. And so that's an important season for us. So, but there, you wouldn't be eating any sugar during that time. And so our bodies are meant to go through all these seasons with different functions. The challenge is that most people living in America, or frankly, anywhere in the developed world these days yeah. are eating sugar every single day. So they're basically in the fall season every single day. But Eric, that can't be because if people are in the fall season every single day, based on everything you just said, then there'd be a huge prolific explosion of, of obesity. Oh yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Crazy. And, and from a little bit that I know about this and I'm amateur on this stuff, but also too, I think a lot of the refined carbs have a very similar effect on the body, wouldn't they? Yeah, I, I think that um, I, I think that's very, very true. And they have, you know, they have, they have different effects on our taste buds, different effects on our metabolism. And the way I would put it is, is that the preferable sugar is naturally occurring sugar that exists in seasonally available fruit and honey. And why? Because that's what we ate for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. And then as you start moving away from that, you start processing it bad. Mm-hmm. You start developing new types of sugar bad. You start developing fake sugars like refined reconstituted garbage corn syrup and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. now you're way off track mm-hmm. you know so so obviously the the if we stick with the healthier sugars and we stick with them as a seasonal thing then we're then we're then we're playing into what our body is actually looking for hmm. so question for you if if i'm listening i'm in the audience i'm listening here and say this this sounds awesome i want to start making some changes in my health where do i begin so uh, this is some of the stuff that i want to maybe uh, abstain from in a way. So what, what should I start eating or what maybe? Yeah. Give us some tips on that. So Ben, this happens to me on a lot of podcasts where people come and go, well, Eric, then tell us what we should eat and what yeah. we should avoid. And then yeah. I go, well, if I did that, then I'd just be another diet. I don't offer people diets. Got uh, it. Diets don't work. They don't work. They don't work. The statistics are clear on it. The diet industry doesn't work. And, and I want to be really clear about this. The diet industry is often predicated on the idea that it's your fault when it didn't work. They blame you. You should have shame and embarrassment about your inability to stick with it and your lack of willpower. It's your right. fault. No, people don't fail diets. Diets fail people. That's mm. how it is. Mm-hmm. And so I don't generally come on a podcast and go eat this and don't eat that. Cause the truth is people won't, they, they, most people won't, they will for a day or two, or they might think about it or they'll go read a Google article and they'll find out that, that they're going to find the cognitive dissonance of the food industry that says one day bread is good for you. And the next day bread is bad for right. you. And food or bread, I should say is bad for you. Yeah. Let's do this a different way. Of course we look, Ben, if you got yourself an exotic pet and you wanted to know what to feed this exotic pet, would you go on the internet and look at PubMed's latest studies on nutritional macros to find out what your exotic pet is supposed to eat? Would you head over to the Harvard University website to find what the latest double blind clinical trials say? Or would you instead watch the nature channel? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you just go watch the nature channel and you go, Oh, look, that's what my exotic pet eats. And I'm yeah. going to feed it that right. Like, and I know in a sense I'm oversimplifying it, but sometimes things can be oversimplified and work. And right. that's kind of the way it is. So 
Here's the thing is that it is incredibly profitable for us to be confused about what's good for us. It's incredibly mm. profitable for us to be, to think wine is good. And then wine is bad. Bread is good. Bread is bad. Meat is good. Meat is bad. It's very profitable because the more confused you are, the more they can simply dictate to you. We are supposed to be the smartest species on the planet. We're supposed to be mm. yet. We suffer with more like lifestyle caused diseases and pain and suffering than any species on earth, except of course, our pets and livestock, because if you are fed by humans, you're in trouble. Mm. <laughs> That's how it is. So, all right. So if we, if we, if we say this first, I share a principle, then I'll answer your question. The principle is this, any food science or food recommendation that contravenes what we know from evolutionary biology must be questioned. That's it. So if somebody comes along with this double blind study that shows that red wine is unbelievably good for you because it helps thin your blood. Well, then you got to take a step back and go, well, wait a minute. Now our ancestors barely have had wine for a few seconds of our evolutionary time. So even if it is good for us, it can only be accidentally good for us and not intentionally good for us. And it certainly can't be necessary. Mm. And then you might take a look and go, well, maybe the reason that it's good for us is that it helps thin your blood. And maybe you need your thin, your blood thinned because frankly, the rest of your diet has been so deplorable. You have arterial plaque buildup. And so the truth is if you weren't unhealthy in the first place, you wouldn't need your blood thin. Mm. You see, Whenever a science comes along and says, this is good or this is bad, and it violates evolutionary biology, we have to second guess it. We have to. So now let's take a look. We know what our ancestors ate. That's not a mystery. The food industry wants you to think it's a mystery. They, they want you to. The, the pharmaceutical companies probably want you to think it's a mystery too. They, they want you to. My great-grandfather excavated many of the caves on the southern coast of Southern Africa, and I went into many of them before I even knew he excavated them. How I found out he excavated them was I read a plaque on the wall one day and his name was there. I didn't even know. But in one of these caves, and, and I want you to think about the time frames here. Ben, where do you live? Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. You live in Edmonton, Alberta, which yeah. means an old house is about 80 years old, right? Yeah. Like in Edmonton, yeah, yeah. if the house is 80 For years sure. old, it's a pretty old house. I, I grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. An old house in Halifax might be 150 years old. Mm. An old house in England might be 300 years old. An old house in Croatia might be 700 years old. And an old house in Egypt might be three and a half thousand years old. People have been living in these caves on the southern coast of Africa continuously for 200,000 years, which makes the Egyptian pyramids closer to my house in Halifax than your house in Ed. I mean, it's, it's you know, mm. what I'm, I'm just I'm trying to say 200,000 years is a long, long time. Really? And what's gorgeous for us is that the people who lived in those caves they kept a food journal. They kept a complete food journal of what they ate for 200,000 years. And here's how they did it. When they eat, they eat and they throw their food over their shoulder. And then the cave floor rises. It rises, it rises and rises because they're just littering all the time. Hmm. And so now archaeologists are able to go into the cave floor, cut a hole deep down into the floor, put in a flight of stairs and put glass walls up like a worm farm. Hmm. And now you can go and see exactly what they ate for 200,000 years. We know human beings have existed incredibly well on a, a lifestyle that involved seasonally available fruits and vegetables and a plethora, a plethora and wide variety of meat, fish, poultry, and eggs. Mm. And, and, and that's it. That's, those are the necessary, and water, of course, but those are the necessary components of our ancestral past. And mm. so if we focus ourselves on those issues, if we focus ourselves on those macros, we're going to do quite well. Now, I recognize some of the people listening right now might want to be vegetarian or vegan, and you certainly can do that. But it is really important to understand that you are breaking with nature. No matter what the propagandists have told you, humans have been eating meat all this time. And so we have certain dependencies. 
We have certain dependencies on things like B12 and iron and certain fats that are readily, and, and most importantly, the full suite of amino acids that are not available in any plant. Mm. And so we really want to make sure that if you make the decision to go that path, I support you on many of our clients at Wildfit are vegans, no problem, no problem at all. Mm. But then there are certain actions you want to take to make sure that you don't, that you supplement. Even the Vegetarian Society of America says, if you choose to become a vegetarian, you need to supplement because they recognize this gap between our evolved diet and people's choices. Hmm. That's amazing. That's so amazing. Um, I've, I've watched some stuff. You talk about this and, and I want you to share a little bit about it, but um, how, how do people start to, because I love what you said is that diets don't work, right? They've, they've never worked. So how do you start to make a transformation in your eating habits then? So when I created WildFit, I made it really clear that I wasn't going to create a diet. Matter of fact, a, a number of my friends, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, Jack Canfield is a good friend of mine. John Gray is a good friend of mine. And, and, and uh, Janet Atwood, Marcy Shamoff, all these top New York Times bestselling authors are really good friends of mine. And, and they're always saying, Eric, how come you haven't written a book about this? Why didn't you write a book? And, you know, I'll tell you that um, I, I decided not to write a book because I knew that in order to facilitate change for people, I needed to have a deeper connection with them, a deeper connection that simple words on a page could do. If I wrote a book, WildFit would have just been yet another diet. It would have been effective for the people mm. who followed it. I think it would have been more effective than anything else out there, but it still wouldn't have been maximum level effectiveness. I needed to work with people personally. And so initially that's what I did. But when I realized I couldn't scale that, I made the decision that rather than a book, I would focus on multimedia immersion. I would focus on digital programs so that people could actually hear stories, they could hear tone of voice, they could see body language, and they could be embedded in it. And incidentally, the reason that Mind Valley chose to publish WildFit, and 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 the year they were they made that decision, they had already made the decision to cut back on something like eighty of their authors and focus only on their best of breed internal authors. So getting added on at Mind Valley at that point was mm-hmm. an impossibility. But the reason I got added on was that Vision was driving along in his car doing WildFit. And he, and he tells the story this way. He says, I was driving along in the car and I put on my next WildFit track and, and it was Eric. And Eric goes, welcome to day 66 of the WildFit challenge. And Vision's like, I haven't done, I've never done anything for 66 days. What, what is different? What, mm-hmm. what is working? So, so let me answer your question properly. And that is this, that if you want to stimulate really serious change with people, there are some principles. And one of the principles is, is that progress is fundamentally motivating for people. And the challenge for most people when they go on a diet is they have one thing that they're focused on, the most common one being weight loss. Mm-hmm. And so here's the challenge. As long as weight loss is the single thing that they're focused on, then if they don't immediately start to experience weight loss, which they really probably won't, then what happens is they start losing motivation. And so we poll our clients. And what we have found with tens of thousands of clients over the last 10 years is that when we get to the two-week mark of our program, we ask how many of them that two weeks is now that this is now the longest they've ever stuck with any kind of health program. Mm. And 80% of them raise their hands. 80% mm. have never stuck with a diet. So, so, so you, what you need to do is understand what is making people not stick mm. and what's making people not stick is ridiculous rules, uh, costly effort, uh, pain and suffering and a lack of progress. Those are the things. So if you can reverse those things, which we've done, you get people immediate feelings of progress and immediate and, and, and immediate feelings of success and no feelings of failure and no shaming them and no guilting them. Then they stick with it and combine that with, with really powerful psychology, with really powerful storytelling and they have progress. We, we have people at the end of just two weeks, tell us 80% of them tell us that they now know 
that their relationship with food will never be the same again. Wow. And of course, many of these people have tried every diet under the sun and it hasn't worked. So, so there's those, so those psychological principles are powerful. And I'll give you one practical one right now, mm-hmm. a really, a really practical one that everybody can take away. I mean, if you just do this one thing, you can change your life. So this is, this is, I know a lot of times people like want to talk all the sizzle and hope you sign up. Ah, yeah, I hope people come. I hope people come and they, they, they come and do well to it, but, I, but I'm going to give you something right now that can change everything. And, and here, here's, here's, here's the way it works is that any behavior that you reward you will repeat any behavior that is rewarded will be repeated. Now, this is an incredibly powerful life principle. It applies incredibly well to food, but it applies to all areas of life. If your significant partner behaves in a certain way and you capitulate to that way and give them what they want, they will use that way to get what they want again. Hmm. If your child uses temper tantrums to get what they want and you give them what they want, they will use that method again. Hmm. Any behavior, that is rewarded will be repeated. And this is a very tough thing for parents if you think about it in that context, because your child is like begging and crying and please, 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 please. And all you want is the silence in the end. In fact, in marketing, there's a technical term for this called pester power because they know that most parents do not have the fortitude to live through that. And the joke is what most parents don't understand is if you live through it two or three times, it goes away. Mm. But the minute you give into it one time, you've just bought another three months of it. All right. Now, I like to give that example because the same thing is true for ourselves. And here's the principle you can apply. If you are feeling sad, depressed, lonely, angry, if you're feeling some negative emotion and then you go and eat, I don't know, fill in the blank. What would make you feel better? Ice cream, pizza, chocolate, donut, cookies. It doesn't really matter what it is. The point is, is that if you are feeling a negative emotion and then you go give your body this high gross fat, high calorie, high sugar, sensory overload that triggers a bunch of dopamine and serotonin, then your mind is going, what did I do to get that? And how do I do it again? Mm. And so if you use chocolate to end your depression, you are teaching your nervous system that the path to chocolate is depression. Hmm. I know, I know. And, and, wow. and it's one of the biggest realizations somebody can have about the relationship with food. Now, let me give it to you very practically because, you know, I'm, I am my own for, you know, you always end up teaching the thing you needed most, right? That's me. Mm-hmm. And, and I can tell you that over the holidays, I had my girlfriend here with, with her two girls and, and her sister and her daughter and my daughter. It was just a house of women and it was gorgeous and we were just having the best holidays. And then two of them left. And then two more left, and then the kids went, and then my and then my my girlfriend was here, and then she left, and then my daughter was here, just my little my at the time four-year-old daughter was here, and we were just blissing out, and then it was time for her to go back to her mom's. And I was in the house alone. And you know, it was a Friday when the handover happened, and I'm like, got my house to myself. I'm so excited. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna I'm gonna do all the men, I'm gonna watch violent stuff on the TV, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do whatever I want. It's gonna be man time. And then I woke up on Saturday morning and I missed them, all of them. And I, I, I felt this emptiness in me mm. and I went into a bit of a depression, like a real, like I felt really bad. And I'll tell you something, nothing scarier for depression than when you're quite successful in life. Cause like when you have what you want economically and you live in the house you want, you've got the life you want and you wake up sad, there's not something you can go buy to make yourself feel better. There's not, yeah. there's not some hope that if I win the lottery, I'll feel better. You know, no, I'm, I'm feeling I'm in and I'm feeling this horrible feeling. 
And then suddenly I realized, Ben, I have ingredients for grace. Grace is the ultimate yummiest smoothie in the history of smoothies, in my opinion. I learned about it from Cafe Gratitude in San Diego, California, or actually Los Angeles as well. But I, 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 it, I realized I had the ingredients. I had almond butter and I had dates and I had, I had raw vanilla powder and I had coconut water. I had all the ingredients. And I was like, I've got the ingredients for grace. And I was like, oh, and I started to feel good. And then I was like, no, no, no. And I, I had a firm conversation with myself in WildFit. We talk about the angel and devil, food angel and food devil conversation. We had a serious conversation and we reached a deal. And the deal was the only way that I could walk into that kitchen and make grace is if I ended up having a fantastic day, but I could not use it to feel better. I could not use it as a drug. And I was so pissed off with myself for making this deal because I knew I could just feel better right now. Hmm. But I also know that if I did that, I'd be teaching myself that the path to those incredible calories and that serotonin and that dopamine was to feel depressed. And so I forced myself like, well, what would, what would I do then? I, if I was going to have a good day, I'm like, you know what? I, I'd probably go out and build sandcastles because I love doing that. And I live on the beach. So I'm going to go out and build. So I'm out there irritated with myself that I'm building this. I'm not even enjoying freaking sandcastle. And by the way, I don't even have any kids to blame it on. Normally, you know, you're out there, 50 year old guy building sand. You got a couple of, ah, I'm building the castle for the kids. It's yeah. for the kids. I'm out there alone building the castle, not really enjoying it, but then the tide starts coming in. And I built this dam that, that lets the pressure off and the water comes around the rock this way and pools fill up. And, and pretty soon I got to fix this dam over here and I got, and I'm in, I'm having a good time. It's like, it's like there's drama and I'm enjoying my sand castle. And two of my friends walk by and I'm like, Eric, that's incredible. And this castle now is like probably 10 feet by 10 feet. It's a big castle. It's with dams and pools. And, and my buddies come by and they go, Eric, that's an incredible castle. And I'm like, yeah, let me show you how it works. And I do. I, and they go, you want to go grab some lunch? So we head over to the kite club and we grab some food and we're talking and we're telling jokes and we're having a great time. And then I'm walking home and I just, I've had the best day. And then I go, now you can make grace. <laughs> and I went in and made grace and I rewarded myself for having a fantastic day. And this one hack is life changing. That's amazing. Man, you know, usually when I'm doing this, I'm, I'm, I'm ready, but that, that's mind-blowing, that strategy right there. It's just so good. To, yeah, it, it I, is. It, it's life-changing. And WildFit is built upon principle after principle like that wow. that help people create real freedom for themselves. Because you know what I don't want? I don't want people that are not eating something and feeling regret. And I also don't want people that are eating something and feeling regret. Mm. I don't want people to not eat what they wish. I want them to not eat what they don't want to eat. And I want them to feel good about that. I don't want them to feel FOMO. I don't want them to feel like they're missing out. And I also want them to eat what they eat with a sense of abandon and bliss and feel good about it. Mm. And, and right now that's not the way the industry works, not the food industry or the diet industry. It's all built upon guilt and shame and, 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 and marketing directly to our negative emotions. We can hack it. We can turn it around and massively improve our quality of life. Wow. So, how do people get more involved with WildFit? Where where do they go? Where do they get more info? The best place is getwildfit.com. 
getwildfit.com. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's Ben, we launched something really cool. It used to be that if you wanted to do wild fit, you had, you, 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 it was a 90 day decision. You jumped in for the full 90 day program, mm-hmm. but we found that the uh, first two weeks of the program were so incredibly powerful that we now have, um, uh, and we're trialing a system where people can try wild fit. They can for, mm-hmm. I think it's like $27 or something. They can go in and do the first two weeks and then make a determination whether they want to go through the rest of the nutritional training and all that kind of stuff. The first two weeks are foundational psychology and life-changing. So getwildfit.com and, and, and the Try Wild Fit campaign is right there. That's amazing. Well, I think everybody listening, you ought to definitely go check that out and at least go, go do the two weeks. I'm excited to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to get on that right after this. So I'm excited yeah. about it. Um, and then I know, I know you've got a good social media following too. Can, what, what's your Instagram handle again? I'll put it in the at show. Eric Edmonds. It is. Okay. Same on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, Twitter uh, at Eric Edmonds. Although I do, I manage Instagram myself. The other ones, I admit there's people managing yeah. that stuff, but I manage Instagram myself. If anybody ever has questions, I do my very best to get back to all the DMs that I get and uh, certainly feel free to reach out to me there. Amazing. So make sure to go follow Eric on whatever platform you're using. Check in with him there. Uh, go check out getwildfit.com. And Eric, this has been amazing, man. I mean, I'm I'm so thankful that uh, that we crossed paths when we did. I had no idea how much you were going to bless my life with this, and and I'm excited about it. I'm excited about doing some other stuff together down the road too. And thank you for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. Keep up the good work. Thanks, everybody. Make sure you do share this episode. I mean, Eric's obviously you can tell he's got passion. He's seen it change his life and thousands of other people's lives. And and this is one thing that almost everybody has in common that can be a challenge for so many of us. So let's bring this great, great information, proper information as many people we can. Share it with everybody you know. When you're sharing on social media, tag Eric on it, tag me on it. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you soon.